old for this shit. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> Finally. No, but I can't be. I mean, I'm only... Jesus. Yeah, you owe me. Can't beat the clock, Briggs. Wow. Well, if he's right, I mean, we're dinosaurs. What am I... What am I gonna do? Accept it. Bullshit. No, I'm not gonna accept it. No, I'm gonna uh, will it not to happen. Will it? Yeah. You know, <laughs> will it? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will it not. We're not too old for this shit. Oh, well, well, we're, we're not, not too old for this shit. We're, we're not, not too, too old, old for this shit. Say like you believe it. We're, we're not, not too old, old for this shit. shit. Yeah. everybody should be the mooney episode 60 big six zero yeah boy i'm getting too old for this shit that's the title there you go uh there's a reason behind that too um it's friday what is it july 9th 2021 uh friday evening here in our area it was a crazy tropical storm uh remnants i mean like the outskirts of a tropical storm we were feeling that did you see the clips of the subway Shook? yeah i saw our lady like swimming through like the friggin' like rainwater subway water which is basically like uh springfield um nuclear plant water i don't know if our lady grew like an extra limb maybe she's goro from Mortal Kombat, but I'd I'd have to believe nowhere you'd want to go or had to be at was as important as, like, wading through fucking, like, shit water with subway rats and all that nasty shit. I don't know why that happened, but I would have just walked to the next stop or, you know, that's why I'm glad wherever I'm at, it's, like, the L, you know, it's elevated, so you don't got to worry about that shit. It was like Last Crusade in Indiana Jones. Ah, the rats, you know. God, I would under clean the not. Um, Those what rats do are it? doing like fucking backstrokes and synchronized swimming. Like that's that's what rats are hey, doing and not. Uh, speaking of which, I saw a little friend uh, in a place of business uh, that was not a rat, but it was very small, taking a shower in a sink, and it was a classic. Oh shit, dude! I, I walked in on him. Oh man, I'm sorry. <laughs> um that's always a little startling when you like you see something like that uh but yeah it could have been like a intro to a uh origin story like the train was coming oh shit i gotta get it and then i know her boom like she got the cosmic powers from the nasty water uh but i'm glad i didn't have to deal Just with that coming back from port not sure like moses all I did was all I did. My people go. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, oh man. Um, my people is like old Dominican ladies. Yeah, old Dominican ladies in the diggy da. Um, but yeah, but Thursday, uh, during that whole thing, it was so relaxing, down and off rain. I literally just the day got a lo- I lost the day. The day got away from me. Uh, I I read the book that we we, we have been reading, 
went in and out of YouTube videos, had weird dreams. I had a sugar, uh, I had candy because I was picking out. My, that's my vice. That's my latest vice is just candy. So I was having weird dreams, like sugar rush dreams, like weird stuff was going on. Uh, so when I woke, when I woke up from my dream, I was like, what the hell? Where am I? One, yeah. one of those. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't have nightmares. I have bad dreams. Nightmares are shit that scares you. Like bad dreams are just things that don't, um, you don't want to anticipate happen, but like happen in your dream and it just, it, it sorrows you like nightmares are like full on, like. A fucking like you know like Mike when we were talking about like the the jail shit like that's oh, yeah. what you have nightmares about no but I they I could write these things down and like sell them to like yeah. a, a B movie the, uh, studio and they would have produced this stuff back in the sixties and seventies that's how uh, intricate and uh, storytelling is very in depth uh, but anyway speaking of Hollywood movies uh, today we're gonna talk about a bunch of things uh, first I just want to mention we're gonna be talking about uh, a filmmaker we lost mm-hmm. uh, at the age of 91, Richard Donner. We're going to talk about him and his work and uh, kind of what he means to us as fans of film and uh, the process of making film. I have a lot to say about filmmakers, it. I don't care. I'm not giving up on my dream. Hey, you never know. Mm-hmm. You got 60 years. <laughs> I already <laughs> have like a movie idea. Me and Mike, I already got, I already got like an idea for us. Our first like big budget movie. But that's yeah. off air. Yeah, and we're going to also talk about our continuing adventures with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, speaking of uh, the, the art of making film and the business behind it. We're going to do our part two of that. Uh, speaking of business, uh, media is a business. You know, uh, We're going to talk about a situation happening in the world of Disney, ESPN, uh, Rachel Nichols, Maria Taylor, Shook. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about that. Um, I have a lot of ideas behind like the business behind it show you have a lot of things you want to say about it so we're going to jump into that um but speaking of espn and uh disney abc game two of the nba finals were last night what'd you think i forgot what i was doing i think i was playing like i'm a beta show or something or eating or or something and kind of watching the game through the side of my I don't know if Milwaukee doesn't at least win like the first two games here there and if they don't win the two games in Milwaukee, I think it's probably like done. Um well, they're, is, already, they're already saying the Suns are they the next dynasty? That's what they were yeah, talking about. That, that was the talking points. I, I was just curious and I went on like first take this morning. I was like, that's that's the way they go with it. Um and it kind of goes into to what we're going to discuss about Rachel Nichols and Maria Taylor. But, you know, that's, that's where sports is. And, Mike, I don't know if you remember. Somebody brought it up on, on Twitter and I responded to it. And I was like, I actually remember the show. And that was, like, the extent of, like, the hot take on ESPN where now, like, ESPN is, like, the hot take. And then everything is at, like, the bottom of the pyramid. Like, mm-hmm. hot take is at, like, the top of the pyramid, you know, have social media discussion discussing about it, and then actual reporting is, like, at the bottom. And I don't know if you recall, but every Sunday at the show, I think 10 or 10.30, every Sunday, it was called the Sports Reporters with, mm-hmm. um, you know, several great, like, sports 
journalists and Mike Lupica. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was they had that. It was kind of like uh, they also had like the 60 minutes version of it where, you know, like uh uh they w- took it like the 60 minutes angle of journalists like or HBO Sports is another popular one where it was like serious in-depth journalists you know journalistic uh you know ventures into finding out like at the Kentucky Derby now it'd just be like hot take about Kentucky Derby you know like the horse yeah and I, like if you don't recall like sports reporters it was like it was like a half an hour show and they would bring up different topics from the week and it wouldn't be like you know LeBron lost like the 2007 finals like is he a boss like today whereas like back then it would be like oh well oh like how long you know spurs won the 2007 championship how long do you think they could go on winning more and more championships what what are their biggest challenges like going forward and that's you know reasonable like reasonable discussion. yeah that's that's the and, word i was going to use yeah and then they would flip over to the NFL and it would be like, oh, is Aaron Rodgers – do you think Aaron Rodgers is going to be playing for the Packers next year? And they would just talk about Aaron Rodgers playing for the Packers, whereas, like, today it's like, well, you know, his fiance is an actress, so perhaps football isn't the most important thing in his life. And he, him marrying Shalene Woodley is part of him trying to get out of playing for Green Bay because Shalene Woodley is not moving to Green. Like it would be that type of shit. It's the Pepe Silva, uh, Sylvia uh, uh, effect. Yeah, conspiracies. Yeah, uh, like, all, yeah, yeah. like yeah. But Pepe Sylvia, Pepe Sylvia. Yeah, and then at the last like five minutes or like three minutes of the show, each of the guys would get like a minute or like thirty seconds to like to talk to the audience. Um, or viewers and just give their like spiel and it's not like today's spiel where people just say random uh, nonsense it would it would be regular stuff like you know like Donovan McNabb where do you rank him he's taken he's taken the Philadelphia Eagles the four NFC championships and he's lost the Super Bowl is he still one of the greatest QBs in Eagles history or Michael Vick, can he put the Falcons over the hump being a running quarterback? Like, and that's that. And it would just be that in a nutshell. Whereas, like, today it's like expanded and it's got like a big old like narrative on it. Narrative, um, narrative. Yeah. Great. Uh, so, uh, someone brought up the fact that uh, after the, the Heat made it to the championship last year against uh, in the one they're in the bubble, the first thing Rachel Nichols said was, she was like kind of like structuring it as like a narrative yeah. and uh, what's his name was kind of like, can I just enjoy it? It was kind of like the, will you just be quiet, Susan? You know, that <laughs> thing where like, she's like the weatherman like flips out and all that. <laughs> but uh, she was just like trying to like craft it. Cause again, you know, ESPN Disney, which we'll talk about, it's kind of like, they're trying to sell uh, a storyline more than just like 60 buckets, you know, like yeah. st- stats like, and stuff. And he was like, can I just enjoy this and we'll get into it later. Yeah. Like when I was a kid, it was, you know, you missed like, your, your Yankee game or your Nick game, like you were able to just pop on ESPN or ESPN News or whatever, and you'd be able to see the highlight, you know, of the game. Whereas today, you gotta like sit through like 
10 minutes of, you know, whatever they're babbling on about. And then there'll be like a minute of highlights and hopefully like five to 10 seconds is like the Yankee game that you missed and you were trying to look for the highlights for. Yeah. And it's just like personalities and not just like the facts, you know, which is all news in general now too, mm-hmm. um, which we'll, we'll talk about that a little later on. Uh, last thing is it's July. Uh, so- segueing from sports into pro wrestling real quick. Uh, AEW came back and they had crowds on the road again for the first time in over a year and a half, you know, since like February, March, 2020. I just showed you, just see the, the fan hop the fence, hop the rail and uh, try to get in on the action. No. All right. I, sent I heard about before. it, but I didn't watch the video. Yeah. They, they did a good job of like not showing it on TV. Um, but it's just funny because that happened. And then when basketball started, when the NBA brought it, you know, same thing happened. Like we had that whole situation with fans getting really, really close, throwing the popcorn, you know, getting involved, uh, throwing the long arm Hail Mary onto, uh, uh, at the, at the, in Boston. Uh, but tonight's the last night of the Thunderdome. Uh, you're going to feel nostalgic for the, uh, 2020 empty arenas. Can you believe it's been over a year? Mm. Well, yeah, I guess it's, it's time to go back on the road. Um, you know, right before the pandemic or in the middle of it, we were supposed to go to a live event and that didn't end up happening. And everybody, the more and more I think about like last year's WrestleMania, I was just like, yeah, that probably shouldn't happen. Should probably like skip the year, especially when you ended up doing the next WrestleMania in the same venue you were supposed to do that WrestleMania. And it's like, this year's WrestleMania seemed like a real WrestleMania, but like WrestleMania 36 is like in the books. Uh, but, you know, I'm glad like they're phasing back into regular arenas. We've seen it in like other sports um, that they have in full arenas, NBA finals, a lot of energy in Phoenix in the, the, the Suns arena there, like, you know, you, you need the fans in um the you need fans in the wrestling arenas because the you know the, the energy they feed off of it. And I'm glad like one of their first couple of events is gonna be at Madison Square Garden. Hopefully, I mean you will be there. That's the that's the goal. Uh in September I'm gonna try to get to a bunch of shows. Mm-hmm. So that's it. All right, so let's hop into the well yeah, well, you know what, like um we lied. The last thing I would like to, to talk about, um, we bring up, you know, like Stella. We bring up uh, Stella got a group about. We we brought up Parenthood in the past and this past week, um, Susan Douglas, um, Suzanne Douglas, who played you know the mom on Parenthood, she passed away suddenly, and it was like a very shocking and surprising thing that happened. Um, and both me and Mike, we talk about how these moms and these shows, Felicia Rashad, Susan Douglas on Parenthood, like in the nineties, they really tried to reinforce like a lot of positive portrayals at least on television of black families and she played probably 
because I, I wasn't old enough to remember the Cosby show, but I do remember Parenthood and she was one of the educated black moms that you saw on TV. Um, she was also great. She was in When They See Us recently. You know, there's described the trials and tribulation of the formerly known as Central Park Five, now known as the Exonerated Five. Um, but also the one thing I do remember her from is outside of parenthood was being uh Stella's sister, her like judgy, nasty sister. I was like married to a white dude and she was always like judgmental and she played that role really, really well. And it was just sad to find out like she she lost her life and she was sixty-four years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. she was battling pancreatic cancer because I was waiting that's what I was like trying to find out like what she died from and she was in a two-year battle from pancreatic cancer yeah and her tv daughter posted something a couple months ago uh it was like pictures from like their final episode that they filmed together and it was like you know tv mom uh yeah reagan gomez uh she's also on tap if you ever saw tap um that was a real big deal in the late 80s actually won an award I, i i saw uh but that was a big popular movie in the late 80s um but yeah i mean Rashad, I told you, yeah, like on the reruns, I'd watch that Cosby show. And then probably like around the same time as when Parenthood was on WB, like 95 to like 99. So uh, if you guys uh, ever see uh, stars or like Encore, they still show episodes of Parenthood on like mm-hmm. their movie channel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if I'm flipping through it, I actually uh, every once in a while, it'd be like one random episode, which is weird. Like they wouldn't show like a marathon. It would just be like one episode and then like show like a like a, a block of westerns like it's like really interesting but uh yeah we talk about it a lot seems to be a trend on our on our show where we'll talk about something like for a few weeks and then something like this happens yeah or, i was thinking about know, it because we we talked like it, it's on love, uh, um it's an outtake but we were talking about living single yeah. i think we segued into talking about like all the black shows that might have been forgotten from the 90s and we talked about parenthood for a little bit a little bit and we also talked about robin Robert Townsend, Fails on Love, and um, Susan Douglas. And, yeah, it was just really sad to find out that she passed away. But um, there was a lot of love that was shown um, the night she passed away. And, you know, that, that makes me happy. So I felt like it would be remiss if we, you know, in talking about her and I, I actually think we talked about parenthood like before that, so I, I, I think we'd be we would have been remiss if we didn't mention her and um send our best wishes and love to her family as well as her co stars and and her friends Coltrane's. Okay, well uh, well said. All right, Chug. So uh, the beginning of the week. Uh, one of the big things that popped up on Twitter, pretty much on Sunday, right? It was like July 4th. Uh, Twitter exploded with uh, uh, Rachel Nichols' uh, leaked audio from like a year ago that came out in a New York Times piece. Uh, and it basically was Rachel Nichols uh, from a year ago during the 2020 bubble. She was in her hotel room. And I guess they were doing like a Zoom or something like that. And like the feed went directly to Bristol, Connecticut, ESPN's headquarters. And it was recorded. It was kept in a hard drive. And someone 
pass it around or like the executive saw it. So it's, it was a year ago when it happened, but uh, it only came to the public public's uh, consciousness uh, when the New York times uh, wrote the piece and huge, huge hot topic, uh, hot button issue. Uh, Maria Taylor was, uh, was who Rachel Nichols was talking about. And in the, in the audio, it's Rachel Nichols talking to uh, LeBron James' political uh, strategist. Uh, and basically, uh, it, was like, you know, private, it was supposed to be like a private, private convo. And she was basically saying um, there were the banter, the, the small talk was about how uh, it, was, it was Rachel Nichols complaining about ESPN. Uh, she was like, she's nervous. She was nervous about her uh, position in the company because ESPN was changing. Uh, uh, take it from there. Like, you know, like she was like her, she felt like her job was like being uh, threatened by a new person and it happened to be Maria Taylor. Yeah. But we can, uh, you know, open it up from there. Okay. So we know in sports, um, as far as like in game coverage, there's pregame show, halftime show post-game show, and for as far as I could remember, I want to say maybe even back to, like, 2018, it's always been Maria Taylor anyways, but um, there's a host, and then there's, like, a panel, and apparently when it got to the NBA Finals, I think more recently it's been Rachel Nichols, um, in the last, like, you know, in 2018 and 2019, I believe it was Rachel Nichols because, of course, she's, like, the lead NBA host because she does the jump, mm. which is the um NFL Live of the NBA. But unlike the NFL Live, it's, you know, half an hour, not an hour. Like, NFL Live, every now and again, it's an hour. Um. But it came out that ESPN was leaning towards having Maria Taylor host the NBA Finals, which, you know, meant it wouldn't be Rachel Nichols, which leads to a bigger conversation. Why is it that it has to be one woman? It can't be women on that panel, Um, which is, you know, a valid argument but in that conversation that's not what was said what was said was by um Rachel Nichols and this was to Mike do you have the person's name yeah uh, Adam Bendelson okay so that's a person who represents or I believe is like a advisor towards um LeBron James um so there's our connection and within our conversation she expresses essentially it was like two white people you know um commiserating over the fact that while we have to open our um access to african americans because what you said was Essentially, Maria Taylor was going to be the person hosting the NBA Finals because ESPN has done such a shitty job 
with diversity hiring, um, especially when it comes to African Americans. And that was the problem that she had an issue with. And within that conversation, she was like, I understand that. It comes, um, I understand that from the point of a woman, you know, because like we all know ESPN. sports has been like not not even just no, no, ESPN, no, 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 but, know, but like, let's keep it in the context of ESPN is that it was a boys club. Like yeah. there's a book that came out. Uh I, I liken this to uh, SNL very much so, the ESPN's uh history where it'd be in a boys club in nineties, hey, chicks dig home uh, dingers, you know, like uh home runs, go along. Like it was very, very frat boy, which like, you know, nowadays what would we have? We have bar stools now. So like in the nineties, ESPN was very much so like that, two thousands. Uh, so basically Rachel Nichols, like what, like a, I'm losing track of time, but I guess like a decade ago, uh, she was like the woman in the spot, like her spot was like taking a man's spot. So now she's worried about losing her spot to a, who, who a woman, a black woman. And, um, so that's like the whole crux of it where it's like, um, you know, Hey, I, I know all about it. You know, Hey, from the woman's side, I, I've been there, I've been there, mm-hmm. but this is my spot. So yeah. it's kind of like, yeah. So yeah, and, and specifically she said, I understand you want to, you know, do diversity or whatever, but you're not gonna get it from me and from my position. Um that goes with the whole thing with like climbing the ladder and like bring the ladder up with you. Yeah, and it it, it opens up like a whole another conversation. I'm gonna get to that in a minute, but you know, people have been trying to like shift the blame towards ESPN. I think it's 50% ESPN. I think it's 50% um, Rachel Nichols because she brings up Doris Burke, who's amazing. Um, She brings her up and she's like, you know, from my position, it was like, all right, so Doris was the person and not Maria Taylor, I don't think you're having that same conversation because the conversation she had with Mendelssohn was Rachel Nichols, Rachel, the, the conversation she had with Mendelssohn was that Maria Taylor only got that job because she's white. I mean, Maria Taylor only got that job because she's black and ESPN is trying to appease to african-americans and liberals in general like progressives yeah she checks off two boxes is is a very uh dismissive thing that people say oh a woman and a black woman oh it's two it's two things they can cross off the list of that they're doing that's kind of an argument you hear a lot or your murmurs of people talking about jobs and um, And there's a lot of people that accomplish a lot between the 70s and even today where they get in a position, they go to these white establishment or um, these historically white establishments. Um, and the white people there are like, oh, all right. Like they only got there because they're black. It's affirmative action. And that's why like, if you listen to like Farrakhan, you listen to like Dr. Umar, you listen to any like pro black people, they they say, you know, affirmative action did far more harm to African Americans than it did um 
help African Americans because all it did was enable um the white people who were already in those positions to say, oh, like the only reason you got here is because of affirmative action. Yeah, I've, uh, that makes sense. Uh, I've heard people uh, say that that's, that's those sentiments. Uh, basically, like, um, you're reliant. I always bring that up to, like, oh, you're reliant. Like, you're only here basically because you got the handout. Uh, but basically, on Monday, what uh, Rachel Nichols, Nichols was put back on the air. She had her little uh, opening remark saying, you know, um, I don't want it to distract from the NBA finals. I don't want to distract from her mm-hmm. accomplishments and all that. But then that caused even worse uh, reaction. So on Tuesday, she was taken. Uh, Rachel Nichols was taken off the sidelines, and they didn't air the jump on Tuesday. Yeah, uh, which they should have done Monday. I, I like the, the first thing I said when her apology came. And it's funny because I'm I'm a person. I even when this stuff came out on Sunday. Automatically DVR'd the jump to see what was gonna happen, and she came out and she said, "Like really, like a pish posh apology. Um, never really like explained anything. Just was like, oh, like I respect Maria Taylor. Da da da. You know, it wasn't like this is why I said what I said because she said things. She said things, and a lot of people are starting to like ignore that, and I support that's like." you know, pissing me off or, like, annoying me is that a lot of people are saying, like, well, you know, it's all on ESPN. Why do they have to pit two women against each other? And it creates a bigger conversation because it goes back to me, to white feminism. Because, Mike, we've, we've discussed this before, like, we even started the show back when we were working, and I always told you, I was like, white feminism, like, Feminism, as it's described today, like, I can't support. Female empowerment, I totally and fully support. Like, I believe women should have every single opportunity that men should have. I am all for gender equality. I feel like men and women should be on the same ranks. And they should be afforded the same opportunities. You know, I've talked about, I was like, you know, I wouldn't mind being a stay-at-home husband because I'm a person who enjoys cleaning, um, cooking, and that kind of stuff. And the stuff that I want to do would involve me being at home anyways. So I don't think that's just an opportunity I should be afforded to women. But at the same time, I feel like going out and pursuing careers and equal pay and all that stuff, it's something that should be afforded to women as well, but that's female empo- empo- that's female empowerment. That's not feminism. Feminism, to me, as it is interpreted and taught in this country, to me is rooted in anti-black sentiment. Because, mate, if you do your history lessons, right, the suffragette movement where women wanted rights and the right to vote and all that stuff didn't come about between 1776 and pre-Civil War. You know when it came about? Post-Civil War, because African-American men were afforded basic human rights. 
Meanwhile, African-American women were afforded the same race as white women. And if you go back and you look at all of the heroes and sacred people when it comes to the suffragette movement and white feminism from the grassroots, um, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Seton, um, I can't recall really anybody else, but like off the top of my head, my name, the, the names, but if you look back at speeches they gave, many of them were rooted on me as a white woman should not be treated as less than an Negro male. And it wasn't to say I want the same rights as a Negro male. It was to say, how the fuck do you give black men? And as far as they were concerned, black people, African people, former slaves, these people, you know, maybe a decade ago, we thought of as three fifths of a person. How dare we give them more rights than a white woman? You could look back. I'm serious. Go do your research. All of their speeches included some part where it was like a black man should be less than a white woman. And this went on into pre-civil rights, Jim Crow era, because God knows, look at all of the black men that were strung up on trees because they looked at a white woman or told like a black woman, a white woman sneezed and a black man said, bless you. It was sexual assault back in those days. Believe you me. We talk about the Tulsa riots. Um, I know because it's our most listened to episode, the episode with Bill Burr, where he talked on, when he gave his opening monologue on SNL. And he said basically the same thing. He was like, white women basically hijack the, you know, these protests and these, you know, the woke movement and stuff like that because, you know, that was for people of color. That was for people who were not being heard. You know, it's nothing new. Like, white, that's white feminism in a nutshell. It's like, yeah, let's empower women. And Mike, it's like, to me, like, the feminist movement was like, okay, let's open these doors and create these opportunities for women, right? And the boy, you know, patriarchy, the boys club, they submitted and it was like, all right, we got to create this position. Da, 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 da. All right, we'll give you this position where men, where men have historically only been um, afforded the opportunity for, right? We're going to give you this one opportunity, but guess what? It's four white women and one black woman, right? You know what those four white women do? If that black woman got that position, nope. They only give it to her because she's black. Because being a white woman goes over being simply a woman and not being happy for that woman 
get in that position and opening that door so that hopefully that black woman does well so it creates more opportunity for women in general they take the stance that no she only got that position because he's black and that's exactly what rachel nichols did and you know uh a lot of things i watch or listen to uh a lot of them are center and also like right center right and they were like oh they're reassuring they reassured themselves in the last couple of years they'd be like oh watch it they'll uh they'll go at each other wait and see so they're loving watching uh the woman who everyone was trying to be progressive and have the woman in a spot and now like they're watching they're sitting back and watching this unfold where like you were just saying the women uh wouldn't um the white you know white woman wouldn't um be supportive of a black woman so like you're gonna see this more and more now too where now the next time would be a black woman of orientation you know what i mean the more and more descriptions of like who you identify as uh it's gonna keep happening and i don't know what do you think about that uh well you know when i was in florida and like we talked about last week. It was a lot of shit that I missed. But one of the things was that it was a story that came out. And I don't know. I'm not going to put on my tinfoil hat and say, like, it was this and that. But ESPN, there was a story in the New York Post saying that Maria Taylor and her contract negotiations was trying to get Stephen A. Smith money. Which is no okay, I know what you mean. Yeah, which is strategic because a Stephen A. Smith is basically like the face of ESPN, and he got this big contract that everybody talks about. So he's a black man. So you can't say like, oh, you know, she was trying to get Scott Van Scott Van Pelt money. It wouldn't be as impactful of a story because it's like, oh, it's a black woman going after the same salary as a white man. Right? Well, his own his own hour, his own sports center hour, you know, stuff and belt, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, by putting that story out, imply it implants the idea that she doesn't deserve Stephen A. Smith money because that was one of the first reactions I I had. When I came out, I was like, all right, Maria Taylor hosts stuff. Like, Stephen A. Smith has been on ESPN for, like, ever. Like, Maria Taylor's probably been on, like, the last five years. Stephen A. Smith has been on ESPN. You know, even if you take away the years when he left ESPN and he was on Fox. But he started on ESPN, like, in, like, 2002. So he's been there forever. So in your head, you're like, that's crazy that she would want the same amount of money as him. But it also, by putting that story out, ESPN, it gives that idea that she's greedy and she doesn't deserve A, a raise, and B, she doesn't deserve Stephen A. Smith money to you as a consumer. So it makes her look like the bad person. Mm. And I think it was done. Like if you watch the timeline that comes out one week and then this Rachel Nichols stuff Mm. comes out the next week, it seems kind of like calculated. Mm. Right. Yeah. This was a contract negotiations are coming up looming. 
Mm-hmm. So that's what people were saying. Yeah. yeah so it was kind of like to me, I felt like they were, were trying to, you know, cover themselves or soften a blow, so to speak. And mm-hmm. it didn't work. It has not worked out like that way. Like I've said, like, you know, tongue in cheek, I'm like, you know, perhaps Maria Taylor needs to, like, perhaps Maria Taylor should be grateful now to Rachel Nichols for being like, uh, ignorant asshole um, because now it's going to look bad if ESPN doesn't give her what she wants. Yeah, so basically uh, I heard today that NBC was courting Maria Taylor but Disney of course, you got to remember Disney It's it, that's the bigger picture because ESPN is just a, is under the umbrella of Disney uh, and they've have, they, they have their Marvel, Star Wars, they have you know, all their tentacles are everywhere with, and they're dealing with diversity in different areas of the world, global market. Uh, but now Disney doesn't want to lose her now. So she can get, she can get way more money now by using pitting like NBC against Disney. This is very, very political too, like the timing of this. So, I mean, Hey, take the money, you know, cause in a week, the, the weeks of the cycle, who knows what's going to happen next week. Now is the time. Um, I, I go for the money. Because yeah, and I and I was kind of sad because they had like a lot of um black men that was like coming out of their way to like defend Rachel Nichols, um you know yeah. Mean El Hassan who I respect, um uh, Kendrick Perkins who, uh, well he's been very vocal just in general in the last couple. Of I'll months. give him credit because he was one of the people I was like very respectful of and very um. He he's one of the people I acknowledge like the Knicks um. You know, jump from irrelevancy that we've taken this year. Richard Jefferson, who I have zero mm-hmm. respect since he's retired. Mm-hmm. Actually, I had like zero respect from him before he retired. Oh, I wasn't a fan of him. Yeah, I know. Yeah, um, Tracy McGrady, who's my birthday twin, um, he went out of his way and tried to like defend her. Um, uh, Steven Jackson, um, who I give a ton of credit for because you know he knew George Floyd and he, um, protested and you know put in words, um, you know tried to put George Floyd, you know, perhaps George Floyd's um, death at the hand of Derek Chauvin would have not gotten as much exposure if, you know, Stephen Jackson wasn't out there campaigning for George Floyd, who he was actually, like, close for. So I give him credit for that. But, you know, him, you know, all those guys and others who came on, like, you know, supported. And I understood that because it was like, yeah, well... I don't think she have a racist racist bone in her body. Um, there was a lot of times like ESPN was trying to be funny with me, and she went to bat for me, blah 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 blah. And I'm just like, all right. But to be fair, these are times where you're negotiating to be panelists on her show. Would she have done the same thing if they said, you know, I mean? We want you to host, um, you know, Rachel's going to host two episodes. You're going to host two episodes. And then the last episode you guys host together. Like, do you think she would have did the same thing? Probably not. Because when she went to bat for you, 
you weren't coming for her spot. And, you know, just to circle back, the thing with Rachel Nichols is I can't fault her for being mad that somebody got a job over her. Anybody who feels that they are qualified for a job and somebody gets that job over them, they're entitled to being upset. Like, Mike, there's a lot of times we work together. And I'm like, how the fuck did this person become a manager and I'm still a supervisor? Yeah. How are you, you know, Mike, how are you still a barista and they wanted to bump this person up to supervisor? Like, you got to remember this demographics aside or, you know, these people who get to these spots are sharks. Mm-hmm. You know, these people are talented. They're, they're business minded. They see the writings on the wall. Rachel Nichols got there on uh, her own way. You know, she got there. These are very, very, these individuals know how to keep their spot. They're sharks. It's a jungle there. Uh, I think ESPN is also leaning. They would probably lean towards someone, a new face, creating a new face because they created Rachel Nichols, arguably, you know, they want the next one because she's getting a little too big for her britches, you know, Mm -hmm. and, now this is going to affect her when she wants to uh, get in her deal. She could be like, "Hey, I can host. I can host my own show. I can host Nightline," and you know she could use that. Oh, I can host, uh, or you know, not Nightline, but like CBS. She could become like Transcend Sport, and now she could do like just general news. Yeah, uh, now she, this this knocked her down a peg. And she's married to like Diane Sawyer's son. Yeah. So well, well, Mike. Yeah, Mike Nichols' son, <laughs> okay. who is uh, Hollywood. You know, the writer. Producer, filmmaker. He made a. Uh, Wait, Mike Nichols from the gra- graduate. Yeah, that's yeah. her. That's okay. her father. Uh, that's her father-in-law. Mm, okay. That's why it all in We're gonna talk about Hollywood too. Uh, I don't know about that. No, but my point is, I'm saying I'm not like no one. Like a lot of that's an angle. You know, it's either the ESPN is all at fault, or it's well. You know, does she not have the pain? Does she not have the right to be mad that somebody took a position um, that she was up for? And that's fine. Like, you could be mad that somebody gets hired over you, but you can't boil down the reasoning for them getting that job to, oh, well, you know, they want to appease black people, and that's why she got that job. I'm like, Maria Taylor, her face has been everywhere, and she is talented and professional as fuck. Like, everything. You remember that um, Nick Saban, I don't care if you ask me, I'm not going to tell you. Like, I'm not going to do that. Maria Taylor was the person I asked that question. Last year, once she wore that dress and we talked about it, um, she, you know, she's wearing a dress and somebody called her a fucking like porn star and shit about that. That was Maria Taylor. You know what I'm saying? And regardless of what she was wearing, like she could have done the shit in like a bunny suit and she was still professional as fuck and calling the game and doing her job excellently. So to say, like, the only reason she got that position is just wild. And, like, Rachel Nichols, she's not even 
to a lot of people when I canvas, you know, the, the, the mentions on Twitter, it's like, she's not even, like, nobody really looks at her and it's like, ooh, like, Rachel Nichols is on this, so this is going to be good. It's not. I, I Rachel, Nichols, Rachel Nichols is literally the person last year when Kobe Bryant died mm. that was like, oh, do you think this helps LeBron James' uh, MVP candidacy? Like, LeBron James died, and it, you know, he plays for the Lakers, and Lakers have to do well because uh, Kobe died, and Kobe would have wanted the Lakers to do well. That was Rachel Nichols that said that. I think she doesn't, like, again, uh, she cares about the storylines and stuff, and she doesn't care about the sports. Like, like she th- maybe someone would think of saying that, but she actually said it. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, a fucking sick fuck would. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, 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 it's not real. Like, they're not real people. Like, she's yeah. going for the story. Like, like, this is a play. And these are characters, and she's kind of like, oh, like you know, like just like talking out loud, awesome. like, well, yeah. awesome. and you know what? She's the face of ESPN, and uh, when I stopped watching ESPN, you know her. Young and uh, the Restless is on CBS. Bold and Beautiful is on CBS. Days of Our Lives is on NBC, and I watch General Hospital. That's on ABC, owned by Disney, who also owns ESPN. If you want that type of drama, you go watch that shit three o'clock every week. Stephen A. Smith is actually on General Hospital, so if you want your sports and your he's drama, serious? he's on that. Yeah, I I need to get involved in this. So, so I know what like, soap operas have been going on for what seventy five years, <laughs> but uh, they're they're pre uh, TV. Oh man! All right, so I've always been a fan of the Lethal Weapon series. I've talked about it a lot. I believe on the show. If not, my close friends, they know I love Lethal Weapon. Um, I actually remember when I was a kid, I went to the movies to see something back in 1998. And in St. Thomas, we only had one movie theater and it showed three movies. And one of the movies that they were showing that same night, I want to believe it was Small Soldiers. I think it was Small Soldiers that I saw, they switched one of the movies overnight into Lethal Weapon 4, 1998. And at that point, I had not seen any of the other Lethal Weapon movies. Um, and the following week, I went, to the, went back to the movies, which was actually like two blocks from my house. I live on 3rd Street. The movies was on like Fifth Street, and we went and saw Lethal Weapon, and I was amazed by it. I loved the movie. It was fun, full of action, full of comedy. Um, it was a, you know, a family movie at that point, and I loved it. And I was like, Lethal Weapon Four, like I don't think I'd ever seen like a movie go up to like number four up until that point. But I'd always been a fan of Lethal Weapon and been a fan of Sean Black, who was the writer of the Lethal Weapon movies. And I come to find out Richard Donner was the director of those movies. And I was always in heavy anticipation for a fifth Lethal Weapon. And being our both Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, Mel Gibson, you know, obviously he's 
you know, had his own personal stuff and is, you know, has been controversial, but he's been starring in movies. And Danny Glover, of course, has still been around doing different type of things. Um, even the older he, he's gotten. Um, I, I always had like an outside hope that, you know, the, the gang could all get back together. Rene Russo, um, Joe Pesci, Danny Glover, uh, Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson, and they would... Chris Rock. Well, no, yeah, well, in the last movie, Chris Rock, but I'm, you know, in the whole, whole shebang bang. I was hoping I, like, there would be a fifth Lethal Weapon film, and the closest I got into that was, um, it's mm. always sunny in Philadelphia, which actually gave us, you know, um, some fan fiction... Lethal Weapon Five and Lethal Weapon Six. <laughs> hey, but well now we can't. They took those off the air, man. They took them out. They took them out. Why yeah. would I? I why, would, why would I poison the tap water? I drink tap water. Oi, so on the party without me. Oi. <laughs> uh, but yeah, '98 was a big year. Um, I think maybe I played like the Lethal Weapon video games, saw them on TV. But I only saw part four. I saw part four in theaters. It was 98, summer 98, um, Small Soldiers around that time, too. Uh, and that opening scene kind of was like, whoa, with the flamethrower. Was, that, was, that, was, that was... Yeah, we walked into the yeah. movies late. So I only really saw, like, Danny Glover on the street with his, um, and his drawers dancing yeah, in the I, rain and fire. Yeah. But it looked like a superhero movie. It was great. It looked like the end of a movie. You know how like, James Bond would always have, like, a... Of course, who I'm talking to, but they would have like an action sequence in the beginning. It was kind of like a mini movie, and then it would start with the whole yeah, movie. pre-title kinda, sequence. Yeah, like a cold open type deal. All right, so Richard Donner, he had a very lengthy career. Ninety-one, yeah. he worked up until you know the last fifteen years. Um, but Richard Donner, uh, when I hear his name, I think of Superman. Mm-hmm. I think of Goonies. I was actually I actually forgot that he did *Lethal Weapon*. Um, he worked with Mel Gibson a lot. He worked on uh, *Maverick* with him. Yeah, uh, which was based on the old TV show with um, uh, Garner. Yeah, yeah, James James Garner, Garner James Garner. Yeah. And uh, so that came out in the '90s. But uh, interesting enough, uh, Richard Donner got his start in cowboy western serials in like the mm-hmm. '50s. So basically, if you go back to the beginning of his career, he was a, trying to be a photographer at NYU. He's from New York City. He's from the Bronx. Um, so he went to NYU for a while. Yeah, got to represent. We lost a lot of greats. We lost the uh, Marshall, Marshalls recently. We spoke about Nichols and uh, Neil si- Neil Simon. Uh, a lot of people from that from that area. Um, Batman, the guy who created Batman, Batcane, Bob Kane. I mean. So basically, um, so after he tried NYU for a while, he went out west. He went out to LA. He started directing. He was an assistant to someone. Then he started working on commercials with Desi Wu, very famous. Desi Arnaz, Lucille Ball's production company, who they basically uh, built. Survived after the divorce. <laughs> you know, they basically created like the structure of how they made TV sitcoms and just like the production uh, style lasted until up until uh, everything nowadays is like one camera shots. But when it was multi cameras and that was how it was for like decades, that was Desi Lu. So he got his start there as like in, in his early 20s. Then he got his first gigs as directing uh, TV shows. 
Ironically enough, me and Shug, we've been reading the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and they mention a lot of Westerns, you know. Um, he worked on similar shows. Have Gone Will Travel. They talk about that. Wild Wild West. Uh, the Fugitive was a very uh, famous 50s show, uh, early 60s. Not I a guess smart. Yeah, it was, it was oh, yeah, I'm just saying. Time, yeah. I'm just moving on now. Like, he did Guess Smart, which was like the, you know, the uh, spy. Yeah. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, Kojak was a very popular show. Uh, he did a very, very famous Twilight Zone episode. He directed the one with William Shatner when uh, he's on the airplane and he flips out. Yeah, he's uh, the tw- thing on the plane, the yeah, on a wing. Nightmare, yeah. There's something on the plane. The whole thing. Nightmare on 20,000 20, feet. Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Very famous one. Uh, then he did another one that I'm not that familiar with, even though I used to always watch the marathons. Uh but yeah, that was the '60s. He worked on a, uh, a Charles Bronson picture. Yeah, uh, X15. A great person who actually filmed a movie in um, the Virgin Islands in St. Thomas, my hometown, and it's it's cool because I looked it up on YouTube. The it was a really elaborate chase scene that took place on like um, this area that I've I've grew up on. So I always love to watch it. Yeah, and Mary Tom Moore's first acting role was in that. Uh, it was produced by uh, Frank Sinatra, so it had the it had a, had this uh, pro government like you know how Sinatra was buddies with JFK. So uh, the X fifteen was this like fighter more plane, brothers. yeah, fighter plane uh, <laughs> that was having negative they were having negative press. So they made it kind of like a propaganda film to like promote the X-15 as like a really awesome thing that we should all get behind. Um, so that was a big deal for him. I mean, the banana splits in the late 60s. The card, the, the, yeah, that, the, that, that, the, that weird show. The mascots. And the... Yeah, yeah. He worked on that. Um, but yeah, awesome. so then in the 70s, uh, we talk about it often, um, especially now that we're talking about the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood again, uh, satanic things. We talked about the the some sonner of Sam, sons of Sam, where in the late sixties, early seventies, Satanism was like a big deal, mm-hmm. big, big back in a big fucking way. Um, so they had the uh, Rosemary's Baby, they had Exorcist, and then Richard Donner worked on one of the most popular movies of that genre, The Omen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very familiar with it. It was a whole franchise, uh, and then he got another franchise right after that was Superman, bringing. The Man of Steel to the big screen for the first time. A legit big screen. Yeah, he did uh, one one and a half Superman movies. Yeah, so let's jump into that. That's a big part of uh, who Richard Donner is. So they filmed part one, and while they were filming part one, they were shooting scenes for part two at the same time. Yeah, it was one of the first few movies. You know, it's... um, I wouldn't say it's... it's it's um, I wouldn't say it's something that's common now. I do believe... In the 2000s, it was common where movies would do the sequels at the same time as they did um, the original movie or do part two and part three side by side to keep like costs cost down because it's a lot easier because the sets are already up. Um, you already have the actors on schedule, so you don't have the scheduling conflicts. Because how many times you watch like a 
a sequel and it's like a character is not in it and then you come to find out it's like oh because that person was like doing another movie but it's much easier if you're they're already contracted to do one movie one day and then the next day they're you know doing the next movie but um the Salkinds was like a father and son like production team who had gained the rights to the Superman movies. Um, today, IPs, intellectual properties, it's like a huge deal. Um, we talked about it a little bit in the Once Upon a Time in the West um, segment last week. But back then, it really wasn't. Like, if you got the rights to Superman the character and you wanted to make a movie on them back then it was akin to like getting the rights to like um uh popeye no nah, not even not it, it, it was like a, a akin to getting the rights to like making a two and a half men trying to make that into like a movie franchise it was like looked up upon that way like if you wanted to get two and a half well i don't know because chuck lords you know like he's he's probably very like protective of his stuff, um. Cause you know in the seventies this was when like comic books started to decline, um. Cause uh, as you've seen, after the Superman series, there was like a gap until nineteen eighty nine when Batman came out, where superhero movies just weren't being made, or the only superhero movies or comic book movies that were being made were like obscure, like Howard the Duck. Turtles, yeah. Ninja Turtles, yeah. Um, but they they really had no kind of plan for the Superman series. All they knew were was that they, you know, wanted their hands in it and they were kind of like micromanaging. And being that Superman 1 and 2 were being filmed back-to-back, Richard Donner actually had enough footage to make, like, a full movie. Um, Before actually being finished with Superman and, you know, focusing on finishing the footage for Superman 2. But they fired him after Superman 1 and hired Richard Lester to do Superman 2. And he did Superman 2 and he did Superman 3. And Superman 2 is not as good as the first Superman movie. And Superman 3 is, you know. Mike, have you ever seen Superman 3? I have it right there. It was Richard Pryor. Yeah, uh, it, it wasn't a good movie. It's 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 memeable. A lot of weird memes, like when he's like bad. Superman turns bad, so he has like a stubble and shit. It's like a goofy movie. Yeah, but, and then Superman four. Yeah, these are these um, are iconic movies to me though because I saw them all the time on Channel Eleven, WB. They would always show them in the like on the, but they weren't great pictures. Yeah, but Superman four. Um, if you've seen the Superman two, it used a lot of Richard Donner footage, and very it was I, I believe like Margot Kidder, God rest his soul, and Christopher Reeve. God rest his soul. Dave, and I think Gene Hockman also said it. it was like Superman 2, it's like 75% Richard Donner and then like 25% Richard Lister. 
and it's not as good as the first movie. And then when you watch Superman 3, which was Richard Lister, it's not good. And then Superman 4, Quest for Peace, is horrible. And that was like some like B-movie director that directed that. And it's not a good movie. So they did a horrible job in letting in in letting Richard Donner go. Yeah, but um, Gene Hackman wouldn't come back for reshoots. Like when they filmed the scenes for part two um, and they had they brought in the new director, Gene Hackman didn't come back. He, he didn't want he didn't want to film anything new. Um, Richard uh, Lester, you know, he filmed this. He made it more silly, more campy. Uh, Richard Donner's was more like, straightforward and like uh, realistic. Um, he he, you know, no credit. He didn't want his name on it and everything because you know it wasn't his project anymore. But famously, in 2006, they released a Donner cut on DVD. Yeah. You remember that was a big deal because they made part five, basically. They made Superman Returns with kind of a protege of Richard Donner, uh, uncomfortable, but Brian Singer. Um, he did Superman Returns, and Richard Donner uh, cut came out the same time as Superman Returns came out on DVD. And it was a big yeah. deal. I remember it being a huge deal. Because Superman Returns was, um, it was shot as a direct sequel to Superman one or Superman two, I can't remember, but it was a direct sequel to the Christopher Reeves movies. And if you watch the movie, it's kind of done in the same way. And I think that's where, like, they kind of did it like a disservice because, mm-hmm. like, at the time I was like sixteen, and yeah. I, I didn't like I've seen like you you said Channel Eleven, like I've seen Superman on Channel Eleven, but I can't, you know, that wasn't my association of superman right um like at that time batman begins had came out the year before so there was like this whole new grounded take on superheroes and superman returns wasn't that but the donner cut did get released like around the same time if not like a year after and this sounds familiar to a lot of people because this happened recently with Snyder. Remember, yeah. the Snyder cut. So that's why it's kind of important. Yeah, I actually had that in my notes, and I'm like, this is the reason why you got the Snyder cut because the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2 was referred to as the Donner cut. And that was campaigned by Margot Kidder, who played Lois Lane in those movies. She was like, you know, Richard Donner, like the, the stuff he shot, it would be a movie in of itself. Like, we had to go in, like, we as in her and Christopher Reeves and Gene Hackman, um, Ned Beatty. Also, mm. I want to shout out Ned Beatty. He passed away. We didn't, I keep forgetting to bring him up. He passed away in between um, the last few episodes. So, RIP Ned Beatty, famous actor, was in a lot of things. Um, Deliverance. Great in life. Great. Yeah. Um, the shooter was probably one of his last famous films, so I, I just I just wanted to mention him. But all of them, they they came back and they recorded these scenes to make it into a whole another movie. But Richard Donner had basically done a whole movie, and then when you watch like the Donner cut, it's like, oh okay, this is this is different, mm-hmm. and it much in the same way of when you watch um. 
Joss Whedon's Justice League, and then you watch the the Snyder Cut, which is like four hours long. Whereas like Josh Whedon's Josh Whedon's like version is like an hour and like forty five minutes, but you know all our extra time it adds substance to the film. Um, and I don't think the Snyder Cut gets done if you know almost twenty years after the Donner Cut gets released after Superman two, and it's like oh like. Yeah, there was a better movie. Why, why, why didn't we get to see this version? This is the definitive version of Superman too. It's like art versus the business side, you know. Which you know, Richard Donner was doing the whole art side of it. Like he he stood up to the producers, and uh, he won in the end. You know, his his cut is going to be the one that people remember. Yeah. Uh, so after that, he made another famous movie, The Toy. That's a really yeah. popular movie with uh, Richard Pryor, uh, Jackie Gleason. Um, mm-hmm. and everyone knows the Goonies. Yeah. Goonies is 1985. That right there is Iconic. like my mom's favorite movie mm. of all the movies of all time. And she has a whole cinephile as a child. Goonies is her favorite movie. And Richard Donner did that. Um, Steven Spielberg produced it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a grand scale movie. Robert Davi has a lot of famous like actors that became famous afterwards. Sean Astin, Josh Brolin, Joey Pants. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, he does the whole opera thing, you know. Uh, yeah. Davi, uh, Sloth, you know, the, the mom from Draw Mama from the Train, mm-hmm. uh, Corey Feldman, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, short round, short round, isn't it? Yeah, he's uh, on it, yeah. Uh, that was after no, yeah, it was yeah, after sir. after. Yeah, yeah, so this is eighty five. He f- apparently there's a four hour cut somewhere of Goonies, mm-hmm. and uh, if you Donner saw, cut, Donner cut, release it. But in the in the music video, they show clips of it. Like I posted a lot of pro wrestling. You know, he's gonna puke. I have uh, the music video for Goonies because like Roddy Piper's in it and Iron Sheik's in it, and they have like different things that are in the movie that was cut but they show it in the music video. So that's the only time you would be able to see this. Like there's a whole sequence with like a giant squid. Uh, Cause you know, Goonies is like a, you know, kids used to play, uh, you know, like treasure hunt, you know, and this is just like, it come to life. It's basically like a kid, kid, Indiana Jones babies, you know, Muppet babies can Indiana Jones treasure map movie. Yeah. And what do we call each other? Goonies. What do you call your boys? My Goonies. Goonies never die. Yeah. You know, good enough for the Goonies. Um, but yeah, that's you know that's an iconic movie. Uh, and then this movie came out uh, the same exact year, uh, Lady Hawk. It's very cult. It's a cult hit. You know, like I actually I used to see it on TV. Uh, I never really got into it. It was kind of like a, a medieval Game of Thrones type deal. That broke even. Big budget broke even. But Goonies, we're still talking about it now. Like it's like a huge huge title. So he, that came out the same year. Um, so people kind of forgot that he had that flop with. Uh, Lady Hawk, and it became like a hit later on with like VHS and um, you know kids who watched it back then. They they talk about it. Uh, Lethal Weapon. Mm-hmm. So 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 back that was eighty seven. You know Mel Gibson is one of the main guys in the Buddy movie. Yeah, but, and it, but, it it broke the mold because if you think about all like the Buddy um, or the interracial like Buddy Cop movies, it's funny as hell because um, I was watching. 
Dave, you know, with Lil Dicky, that show is second season. And this past episode, it was, it was talking about, it was like, how many buddy cop movies, like, how many buddy movies are there with, like, black people in it? And, like, Lil Dicky's, like, oh, Rush Hour. And it's, like, I saw Asian and, like, a black dude. It's never, like, two black guys. But I would reckon, you know, in relation to our movie, I'd be, like, you know, Friday is, like, the like the one black buddy movie. Um, and there's like a shit ton of them in like the seventies, Cooley High, but that's well, not even strictly business. You ever seen strictly? That's not really a buddy movie. That's like more of like a, you know what I'm talking about though, right? Yeah, uh, well, well, Holly Berry. I haven't seen it, but yeah, I know the movie. It's um, a it's an uptight guy and a cool uh cool guy. Yeah, but but like if you watch like the buddy cop movies, whenever it was like a black guy and like a white guy. Like the white guy would be like the um the straight, and then the black guy would be mm. like the screwball guy. Forty eight hours. Forty eight hours. Nick. Yeah, forty eight hours. Nick Nolte, Eddie Murphy, um, all these different movies. But Lethal Weapon was the first one where the white guy was the wild card. And a black guy was like the street, and it's like I don't want to deal with this fucking like this dude's crazy. Like I'm trying, I'm I wanted just I'm like three weeks to retirement. Mm-hmm. Like I don't need this shit. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've been with all the partner for like the last five years. Like why are you putting me with this guy? And that's what Lethal Weapon did, and they did it for four movies, and it's great. And there's a point in the third movie. With it on a boat and boat and they're drunk and he's you know um Riggs played by Mel Gibson is telling Murtaugh he's like what do you have to be sad about because this is after like um Murtaugh had killed his son's one of his son's childhood friends um unfortunately his son's like childhood friend got involved with a gang and he was forced to kill him in like a shootout because he, he didn't realize it was him. It was just him shooting like gang members. Um, cause they had these heavy artillery guns that were provided by like the bad guys. And Murtaugh played by Donnie Glover. He was on a boat and he was like just drinking and depressed and wanted to be all himself. And Riggs was telling him, he's like, he's like, what do you mean? I don't mean anything to you. Like, you're my best friend. Like, your family, they're my family. He was like, I have three beautiful kids. They're yours. Like, I have breakfast every day at your house. And it was, like, the first time you actually seen, like, um, not only two guys of different races and different backgrounds being friends. It was, like, they were fucking family. And then in Lethal Weapon 4, the last shot, which is why I kind of feel like if they never make a Lethal Weapon 5, which as time goes on, because Lethal Weapon 4 was 20 years ago and they were already like pretty old then, I'm fine with. The last shot, Um, the whole crew, everybody who they accumulated over the four different movies, Joe Pesci, Chris Rock, like you, you talked about, um, they had kids, and they all got in like this family picture. It was like, are you? And, and the, the doctor taking a picture was like, are you guys friends? 
And it's like, no, we're family. And it's like everybody all together that we've seen throughout these four movies. That was the first time you've seen that. And I was Richard Donner that directed that. And it's really rare that he did all four, Richard Donner. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like Die Hard, you know, he went to jail, McTiernan. Like, he had to go to jail for part two. So he did uh, Die Hard 1 and with a vengeance. So, mm-hmm. like, you, the tones are different. But with Lethal Weapon, all four, they made, they made them all in 11 years. And shockingly enough, 98, they started filming uh, the movie in January of 98. It came out in July, which is crazy. <laughs> that turnaround for that movie. That's crazy. Think about that. The third movie? No, fourth. Were you, oh, Lethal Jan- Weapon? Yeah, Lethal Weapon 4. Okay. They started filming it in January 98. It came out in July. That's crazy. Okay. That's a quick turnaround. But again, the main the main point is that Richard Donner did all four, which is very interesting. And you don't even see that with like Spielberg movies. You don't even see that with like Star Wars or like uh, Indiana Jones type deals. It's always a little something different. But they got it all done in ten years. It was great. And I, he he's more influ- more influential to like me and your generation than a lot of people think because um, him and his wife, who's now his widow, unfortunately. Um, they produce the Free Willy series. Mm-hmm. So that's something we grew up at, on as kids. But they also produced the first X-Men movie, which might have been the first huge superhero franchise movie because it lives on to this day. Because technically, if they make another Deadpool movie, it's still... um branched off from x-men this x-men movie that he produced i mean unfortunately he also produced the worst x-men movie which was origins um wolverine that was terrible yeah. uh, uh i remember we left that's like I, me and my brother were like oh, we gotta go we gotta go it was a midnight showing we were like oh this is like we were like gleefully laughing uh but in the same exact theater in the same exact theater nine years earlier i saw x-men in theaters, it was uh, a moment. It was it was a, it was a big moment, packed. Asses that you know, like everyone was packed in the theater. Uh, Logan Wolverine wakes up, and I saw this in Cross County. So like uh, Patrick Stewart's Professor X, and he goes, "Oh, good morning, uh, Logan or Wolverine, whatever. Where am I? You're in Westchester." And, I, and some guy behind me goes, "Represent." <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny, like, like one of those moments where people were like yelling in the crowd, and like everyone was just like looking at each other, smiling. The next moment after that was probably Freddy vs. Jason, and then after that was uh, Dark Knight. Fun yeah. moments, popcorn movies. Are you familiar with Radio Flyer? No. Okay, very weird movie now looking back, but it was always on TV on the movie channels growing up. Came out in the early nineties. Um, there's a weird cameo with Tom Hanks where he's, it's like a book a bookend where he starts the movie and he's talked to his kids and then he goes to his childhood. And um, it's, uh, what's his name from North? Uh, Joshua, uh, what's his name again? Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood is like the older brother and the kid from Jurassic Park and Star Kid is the younger brother. And when I was watching as a kid, I didn't really notice that it was about like, a, it was about abuse. Like the stepdad was like drunk all the time. And uh, Radio Flyer, like, he flies away in, like, a homemade plane. And Lorraine Bracco is, like, the mom. And it's kind of like a, you know, coming-of-age tale. And I just used to watch it all the time. So, uh, you know, not a lot of people, like, remember it, but I see it all the time. And Scrooged. 
another uh, character, you know, like Superman, he had to turn that to life. He turned a classic character, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, did a little twist with it with Bill Murray. And Scrooge is one of my favorite like holiday movies and comedies in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so Richard Donner did that one, you know, so. Yeah, Scrooge, Scrooge was like a great movie. And the interesting, about the, the interesting thing about that is it's shown during Christmas time because, of course, it's based off of Scrooge. Um, by or Christmas story by Christmas Carol mm-hmm. by um Charles Dickens, but it actually was released in the summer. That's weird. Yeah. Uh, it is a weird movie though. Um, Richard Donner, you know, Goonies, that Gremlins. Uh, a lot of those movies came out with different Joe Dante made Gremlins, but those movies I used to always think of them that they were oh the same people made these it was kind of like uh, how yeah, uh, marvel movies have the same vibe to it but it's like different directors and stuff it was kind of like you know spielberg's boys you know you know yeah and cruise was one of my favorite movies and i i honestly feel like here's the thing i always felt about richard donner i knew he was like up there in age like every time i looked at him i was like 86 90 91 and then he finally passed off at 91. I was like, why is he not talked about in the same way as like a Steven Spielberg? I can understand with the Oscars, but like a George Lucas. Like these were all like these blockbuster movie directors and he's involved in all these film franchises. And I I was just curious as to why he's, he's not included in that group. Yeah, but he he was around from what the fifties all the way up through the big eighties blockbusters, um, and it's very it reminded me of uh, I was thinking about Richard Donner a lot while I was reading the chapters of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so because uh, he worked on those type of shows in the fifties and it was linked to that. All right, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, our July book club for Shugman the Mooney. Uh, last week we talked about chapters one and two. Shout out uh, to Bob Burton. Great introductory first two chapters to complement each other. We were introduced to uh, Cliff Burton and Rick Dalton. Uh, chapter three, uh, it's uh, Cielo Drive. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Uh, yeah. It's yeah, Cielo. It's it's Cliff and Rick leaving the uh, agency, driving home. Uh, you know, uh, Rick's stuntman is also his caretaker pretty much like he does everything for me drives him gets his food and stuff yeah best and friend it was me it was based off of burt reynolds and his um you know career stuntman because his stuntman lived with him for like 12 years in his guest house well cliff makes no bone he doesn't make no mistake about it where he's like um hey i'm basically your glorified i'm like your gopher we're, we're friends, you know, but he, he knows his role when he needs to do his thing. You know, he knows his job aside from just being his buddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, he brings it up in, in the beginning of chapter three. Um, but th- when I was reading it, uh, it reminded me of like a couple, a married couple coming back from a party. Like, what do you mean by that? Like one of the people going, Hey, what do you, what do you think he mean, meant by that? And then like, uh, Cliff is like comforting him. Like, Hey man, don't, they want you, man. Don't worry about it. Like hyping them up. And uh, these are the seeds that were uh, that are being planted for uh, Rick's character, where he's very insecure, he's uh, anxious, um, 
you know, he's an aging super uh, aging star. He in this chapter he even mentions he goes uh he know he, Rick is well aware that Cliff uh has the leading man looks. Like he could do the stunts and he could be the the leading man. He has the same, he's like the same he has the looks. So he's like that just doesn't help him out, but he's trying to reassure Rick the whole time on the way home. Um more insights reminded me of uh, chapter two, where you learn more about uh, Cliff's uh, war history, which is always a cool little uh, uh, insight. You know, like they mentioned. Uh, yeah, like he was a bit jealous. Well, he because... actually did it. I pretend to do it. You do it. But mm-hmm. he's like, how many, you know, you like, did it. but then he's like, another theme that comes up a lot in these chapters is like foreign and like uh, people coming to LA. Like he, he talks about uh, having to go to Italy now and do these WAP westerns, you know, like he's, ah, I don't have to do these sending Martin, uh, but he's like, no, they want you, you know, he's like, they're re- she's reassuring him. Um, but then he, uh, hey, how many people did you kill with a knife? You know, like they talk about that. Uh, he gets intimate with, he's like, you know, it was very intimate, you know, they kill a pig, you know, that part. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like you know, him giving him a little insight, uh, yeah, that's, that's like, interesting because like um, uh, Rosamund P- Pike, Ros- Rosamund Pike from um, Gone Girl, she in preparation for a scene where she had to slit um, Neil Patrick Harris's throat. She went to a butcher oh, shop yeah. and asked, like, you know, can I like kill a kind of stab an animal or whatever um, to see what it feels like. And it's been said that, like, the closest, I don't think it was said in the book, where it's, like, the closest thing to, like, human flesh is, like, a pig. Because they have short hair and... Um, and the organs, too, are, like, in the similar spots, I believe. Stuff yeah. Like that. So, you know, she... That's how she prepared for a role, by, like, cutting up a pig. So, um, Cliff recommends to Rick, like, all right, you want to know what it feels mm-hmm. like, cut up a pig. And, like... Uh, yeah, he's like you know he's he he thought about it. You know he wasn't gonna do it though. Like that's that's good enough though. He thought about doing it. You know he I'd have to or then I would have to clean it up. Where would I do it? I would do it in the pool. Like the whole thing in his head, he was like being neurotic. Like oh, I'd have to clean up and it would make noise. You know, so like you know he obviously never did it, but uh, you know having his ear, uh, he plays all these like military heroes, uh, throughout his career when, you know, uh, Cliff is the real McCoy to use the old term he's a real deal you know uh we we're also introduced to uh rick's neighbor roman Polanski, and the way they describe him is great in the book because like they go into the backstory of rosemary's baby and roman Polanski's arise from the east like he can, he's from, he's polish uh he worked in uh europe movies and like how we were talking about richard donner earlier in this episode he kind of like stood up to execs and like producers saying like he had his vision so um rosemary's baby was based on like a horror book and they describe how roman plansky's he thought it'd be disingenuous if he portrayed them as like legitimate like satanists because he's an atheist so his like idea of it was like it could have been all in her head basically um so that took the movie from just another straight up horror movie because he worked on like horror movies in the in the 60s hammer films into more of a artistic endeavor where it's like you know very trippy like Rosemary's Baby my mom actually saw that in theaters when she was a kid and uh, very you know late late 60s um, you know the whole you know that whole era 
but it's important that they're talking about uh, Roman Polanski uh, now in this part because you know he describes him as a rock star. Um, he's like the, you know I'm this close you know I can go to a pool party and be the next big thing just because I know Polanski, you know. Um, and later on in this book, they describe another uh, petite guy who was considered a rock star, Charlie Charlie Manson. So what I'm getting from this is that he's already kind of like comparing them to if did you did you get that at all yet? He's kind of talking about uh, Polanski as like this figure, diminutive, you know, uh, demure, or, you know, like petite. And Charlie Manson was also like a small it, dude. Yeah, I would say it. like Roman Polanski and that time frame was kind of what Charlie Manson, um, Charles Manson wanted to be or what he aspired to be. And he couldn't get there. Um, he obviously could influence people, but he wasn't able to influence the right people. Um, part of that, like they kind of elaborated on a character from the movie, um, Pussycat, who we got a name for, which was her birth name was like Deborah Joe. And in the movie, she was played like she was played by Margaret Qualley, who is um, Andy McDowell's daughter. If you're familiar with Groundhog Day um, or any other movie that Andy McDowell was in, and I'm, I just remember watching the movie. I'm like, this chick is hot, but <laughs> to the armpit hair, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I talked to you about that. I was like, the armpit hair was just like devastating for me. I was just like, yeah. Well, you got to be like a super, super feminine chick to pull that off. Yeah. And <laughs> even then, she was beautiful. She's gorgeous. And I'm I'm sure it was part of the, the um, part of like the movie or mm-hmm. like getting into character and the method where it's just like, yeah, you, it's a, it's the sixties. So women didn't shave their armpit hair. Hey, hey, it's 50 years ago, and this could be happening. We're going to get into it, but it, it, it has very uh, parallels to like now, a lot of the parts um, that I'm getting. Yeah. Uh, the, the last thing from this chapter, um, it's in the movie too, where there's the billboard, a section of the billboard of the movie Comanche Uprising. Mm-hmm. All right, so I wrote down this because it, um, it takes place in L.A. It takes place in like a cul-de-sac, a very la-di-da area. Uh, Cliff, no, Rick Dalton actually like makes a point of saying that he owns this house. Like, I live here. I'm not just passing through, you know, because L.A. is a Yeah, he was like, you gotta buy. You don't rent when you're in L.A. Yeah, so like, Polanski is a foreigner. He's coming here. Um, So there's a lot of like xenophobia in this movie, in this book, of course, but like, not in a bad way. It's just in a neutral way. Like, you know, in chapter two, uh, Cliff is talking about like, Kurosawa, but he like he's saying, "Oh, I appreciate because I know the Japanese. You know, I've seen them in wartime. Like, I, I I have a connection to them." But like he's pointing it out. It's not it's not in a racist way. He just they have their own style, like, especially then. Uh, like he's pointing out just because you're pointing out what someone is doesn't mean like you're like diminishing it. He just it's a fact that that he his style is Japanese. He's a Japanese filmmaker. Uh, it comes up a lot in this in this whole tale. This whole Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's about foreign. Uh, but L.A. in general is known as a place where people come to. Uh, Tarantino uh, went there when he was a kid. What, he's like three or four? He's, he, he lived there from when he was like a toddler, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Something like that. 
So he's, he, he's like a townie. Uh, Tarantino's point of view is like, I, I'm from LA. You know, I am LA. A lot of people come in here, try to seek fame. At least there's another scene later on where it's someone coming to LA. Yeah, um, it's like here. Yeah, like when I go out the bars, you meet, you know, in Manhattan, you'd meet people. And it's like, oh, I'm from like Kentucky. Or, oh, I'm over there from like Oregon. Oregon. Mm-hmm. Like two years ago. Um, so, and as you said, like as a New Yorker, and that's the first thing you want to like diss people on. So it's like your transplants. Transplants is the word. Transplants, yeah. like tourists. When I was a tendering, when I was, whatever the word is for tendering, like in 2013, 2014, uh, I was working in Manhattan. So everyone, every every girl was a transplant. Like, oh, I live in, um, you know, somewhere in Queens. I'm from uh, Milwaukee. So everyone was transplants. Uh, but the, the point of them bringing up the billboard, the section of the Comanche uprising, um, it's him being, uh, it, he's in his cavalry. And mm-hmm. uh, the famous story is, who is it again? Um, this, this comes up a lot. Uh, like the military, you know, like the civilization, you know, the soldier. And then you have like the savages and then you have like the natives. And there's a characters that are going to play each of those roles. And the, the reason why they show like a, a piece of one of his films from the 50s uh, is to show that he's out in the, in the desert. And there's moments in the, in the book where they mention how, let's not forget, in the middle of the night, this is the West. This is the Wild West at night. You see coyotes. You know, they always bring that up. They're trying to make you remember. Tarantino wants you to realize that this is a Western. You know, like, and he's, that's why he's showing... Um, Harking back to the, the movie that he was in the 50s, the Calvary. But that's chapter three. Um, chapter four, Brandy, you are a fine girl. Yeah, this was a good one. Nice. Ironically, Kurt Russell uh, sings it, and he's one of the buddies of Tarantino. His mm-hmm. dad was a stuntman and everything. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, um, to uh, volume two. Yes. All right, so this is a great chapter. A um, lot, de- lot more character development for uh, Brandy, the love of... Cliff's life, you know, they mentioned another mentioning of Cliff killing, getting away with killing his wife. Uh, but he's like, after that, he never fell in love with another yeah, woman. It, he it fucked was, women. It was speculated in the movie. <laughs> yeah, because they never uh, actually showed it, but it was like confirmed in the book. It was like, yeah, he he killed his wife. Like, yeah, there's three confirms, three confirmed kills in this. That yeah. We'll get to, we'll get to, aside from war. But uh, all right, so in the movie, they're in the trailer. It's the scene where. Um, you know, uh, Brad Pitt is getting food ready for his pit bull. Brandy is his pit bull. But in the book, we get to meet, we get the meet cute of when he met her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Cliff had a stuntman buddy who he lent money to years earlier when he had the money. Now they're both shit on their luck. The stuntman comes over and he has a, he says, what do I have? Like, I have a 1500 on me or I have something that's worth 17,000, 20,000. It's in the truck and it's this pit bull. And his scheme uh, is, all right, we're going to do dog fighting. We're going to make money, okay? Mm-hmm. So, and it's very much like a boxing tale where the first uh, fight that Brandy has, it's like 50 seconds, she wins. And then later on, it's like, um, it lasts 20 minutes. And like, uh, Cliff is like, uh, you know, this is, the, the next one could be your last one. And the guy goes, exactly, it's her last one. We'll bet against her. And then right there, he kills a guy yeah you know? because yeah he, he he knew 
Like yeah. if you're reading, like he knew it's like I don't give a fuck if like Brandy dies. Like we bet against her when every she's already built up this reputation that you know she'll fuck up like any dog. But we know that her health is like failing because she was actually like injured. I was recovering, and to put her in that fight would be like putting her in a fight like when she's at like fifty percent. So it's like. Cliff knew, like, all right, you put her in a fight, like, she's gonna probably get killed. But the guy, he really showed, like, no kind of, like, um, mm. remorse or any type of, like, sympathy for Brandy. And that was the thing that, like, clicked for, like, Cliff, like, nah. But it was great, though. It was like, you know, he loves her. You know, this is what this is his. And they kept in the beginning, like, he's like, all right, this bitch is like, they're talking the way, like, you know, of course, bitch is a female dog. But the way he's saying it is kind of like, uh, it had a tone of like, he was like a pimp. He was like, all right, this bitch will do anything you want. Like, that's the you know, way Tarantino writes. Yeah. Um, so, like, you know, and then he, I like when he goes, torture builds character. I like torture builds character. And like, this, this reminds me because now I, I have my own puppy now. And I now I know, like, what it's like to, like, take care of a puppy. Yeah. I, like, the whole thing with the pit bull is like, she, she's like, you know, military training of this dog to not wait you're supposed to eat your food first make her watch you eat because like show dominance and then like in the movie you they failed to do this like you don't know the whole backstory to it because like you know the whole climax in the book in the movie the climax in the movie is a dog like you know killing so yeah. it's like now we have the whole backstory because in this medium books can go again like i could be holding this class and I could say harp, and then we, we I could do a whole chapter on the, the history of harp, like the harp company. But the movies can't do that. That's why it's great that we're reading, you know, a different version. Yeah, and, and you know, like you said, where it's like the um torture builds character. Um, and, and anybody that knows me, I'm like kind of cynical about the whole like dog and people like relationship to begin with. But I'm sitting there reading this chapter and I'm like, how do you not know like the fact that you're putting this dog to fight isn't torture in of itself? And like this cow character that you're claiming is being built from it is like already being built because you're making this dog fight. It's not fighting on its own. So he's making a lethal little, weapon. It's a little introspective. Yeah. And lethal and weapon. We and we have a nice little head, a nice little tip of the cap to uh, Burt Reynolds in this, where they're talking about uh, Red Apple, which is like a fictitious Tarantino created that brand, I believe, right? Yeah. Red Apple. Okay, so they has like a fake commercial, which is very much based on real commercials because me and you, we talk about Mad Men. Uh, a lot of commercials in the '60s were like that. Um, but then he's watching Mannix, and then they do a graphic match, pretty much, where it cuts from him watching Mannix to. Uh, was it squeaky or whatever you know one of the family members mm -hmm. squeaky, whatever and um i guess dakota fanning's character i believe so yeah. then it cuts to they're watching the same thing so we're introduced to them just a little bit um anything else from chapter four we get a nice little establishment of this character the brandy which is good mm -hmm. let's let's not forget about cliff living on the outskirts in a drive-in which is great because which like, was, yeah displayed in a movie so yeah. it was He's part of Hollywood, but he's uh, he's not. That's why I like that whole setting. He's yeah, like he's he's in Hollywood, but he's on the outskirts. I've I've never been to California. Someplace I always wanted to go. I dream of going. Hopefully soon we'll get there. Um, yeah. yeah. So like when I was watching a movie, and I was just like him driving from like you know Cielo Drive, like you know up in the hills, 
to driving through LA and you're seeing all these famous LA landmarks that you see and everything to him like driving into like the behind the, the screen of a driving movie and like this big old like um like a dirt bike track or something mm. like that. And it's just like, oh, like, so if, because I've heard, I'm like, yeah, you know, you go to California, like, if you want to live out there, you got to have, like, money. Mm. And I'm just like, oh, so it ain't all, like, glamorous. Um, and, you know, you just land in LAX and you hop off a plane and somebody, you know, signs you up to a five-picture deal. It's not, not all that. So it, it, I thought that was really cool um how is like portrayed in the film um by quentin tarantino it's again like a way he uses hollywood as a character exactly yeah it's 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 a character in itself uh chapter five uh the creepy crawl pussycat's creepy crawl yeah so like when i thought about this like when i was reading it you know what it made me think of like if you were like a big fan of um metal gear solid Hideo Kojima. Like it's a seeking rem- mission. <laughs> yeah, it reminded me of like a Call of Duty, um, GTA, Red Dead Redemption mission where it's like you got to stealth mode, stealth mode through this house, and you know, especially Metal Gear Solid because it intertwined like Charlie, you know, Charles Manson being in her head like talking her through the shit so it reminded me of like Otacon and you know it was a little like video message you know the uh Q. And it, yeah I, and it's like that's what I thought of I thought of like a solo mission in like a video game like that whole chapter and I was I was telling Mike I was like this is a short chapter but it was a sequence it was like a like a sequence yeah. uh, and like you get the achievement at the end for freaking out the squares yeah. all right so like the whole chapter I'm thinking about, this reminds me of, uh, like, you could probably hear drums if this was a movie. They would probably like, dum, dum, dum. But for, forgive me, this is not in the movie, right? No. Okay, so in my head, I'm picturing, like, his voice, like, him talking to her, and then, like, basically, she takes off her civilization. She takes off her clothes, eventually. Yeah. Um, so, basically, it's her being, like, the native, sort of, like, going into the village. Like, in those movies, in the Westerns, you know all about Westerns. They sneak into, you know, like, the village or, like, the town. Um, so, I was picturing that. And the climax of this, I'm like, oh, it's, that was a little tool on the nose. But he's, she says Geronimo. And I'm like, all right. You know, yeah. so, like, basically, they're playing the role of, like, you know, the naked, you know. Yeah, once you, like, strip naked, like, I don't know why. I mean, I it, 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 like, it makes sense to me. I, I like, in my mind, I was like, because it, it didn't really, because this was before, like, her mission was to sneakily go into the house on notice and swap out um, a regular light bulb for a red light bulb. But it wasn't established before that. So when she started stripping naked, like, in my mind, I was like, what is she going to do? Like, urinate or, like, take a shit on the middle of their living room floor. Like, that's what I thought. So when she stripped naked, it was like, all right, like, I'm going into the, to the bedroom. Like, that's, that's where I was going. That's what was going on in my mind. I was like, why is she naked? You could do all this stuff in her head. But, like, once she stripped naked, in my mind, I was anticipating her, like, doing something, like, nasty for some yeah. reason. 
like okay you can think she's getting naked it's sexy it's sexual but you can also say like oh she's like a kid kids kids do that shit like where they're acting like silly kids like you know being fucking annoying mm-hmm. with the light bulb and um you know uh it was nice little nice little reference to beverly hillbillies i could picture him and then you know at the end of like you know they're waving and so she looks out the window and it's all funny games and she's just like waving at her friends um you know i mean eventually you know they kill like they like they even allude to it where like she knows that the thre- oh no someone's there that means i actually might have to do something you know like they don't really want to do this like they're just kids you know it's fucking crazy um uh, really weird uh but then like you know she freaks them out the squares um you know achievement unlocked you know like, hmm. just like the an example of the calling get a little x one yeah a little trophy um yeah um there's other, oh yeah, so then they do the backstory of uh, Deborah Joe, who's 15. So they mention how the father like kind of uh, signed off on her hanging out with Charlie Manson. Yeah, he and, wanted to be part of the gang, and it was just like he, he like even Charles Manson was like, oh, like her father wants to be in my gang. Like I just I can't do that. No, but that's weird because like that's when I mentioned line. when I mentioned Polanski, Polanski got permission to be with the young kids too. A lot of people got like sign offs from like their, uh, with their parents to hang out with the famous director. So like, mm-hmm. that's why it wasn't illegal. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, so I thought that maybe he was connecting them to again. Yeah. Because like in like the, what I've read from him, um, Quentin Tarantino about Roman Polanski He's actually like defended Roman Polanski in the past, I believe, in light of actually somebody who was involved with this film mm-hmm. early on, Harvey Weinstein. Like he's actually like apologized for um supporting or at least you know being um ignorant to not doing anything is what he said like because even though it's not okay he goes i thought it was just like grab ass in this character because he goes oh, which is not okay but he was like all right that's how yeah. far he thought it was it's going. funny as hell because like i mean like none of it is funny but it you you could take humor in the fact that like um cameron the rapper when he was talking when he, he did a song recently he was like i was smiling <laughs> He was like me and um Dame Dodge like slapped the shit out of Harvey Weinstein on paid in full because he got like real like inappropriate with like the extras and shit like that and they told him like nah you're not doing that with us. And they never I don't think they ever work with each other again. That's crazy. It's crazy how like how open secret it was because and Howard Stern talks about it in 2006. He's like, oh, him. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like and it's, it's like, you know, in Cameron's thing, he was like, I've only brought it up now because I thought, like, he, you know, he just did it on our set, but apparently he was doing it everywhere else. So yeah. now that this just come out, I'm like, all right, I could rap about it. Well, South Park did it too. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so Pussycat, Deborah Joe, that's chapter um, four, but chapter three is Brandy. Brandy's a dog, and, like, Deborah Joe is a cat like he's training this girl to be like you know it's it's like cliff was training brandy and like uh charlie trained deborah joe to do this and like he used a dog and then he used a pussy cat and I, that popped in my head yeah and like it out, but yeah. this, i'm in com- comparing contrast mode um but yeah rosemary's baby um it was like an old couple it, the, the plot of it is the old couple wants like the soul of the baby um, so like the saint, so Lucifer can come back or whatever. And the uh, John Cassavetes sells his soul 
basically to be like successful. And um, there's a lot of allusions to that with um, Charlie Manson, like selling his soul to be famous because he wanted to be like famous, right? Mm-hmm. So that's another thing where like he's he's connecting these two. Uh, it may it makes sense of what ultimately you know ultimately happened with Clancy's fiance. Um, but that's that's chapter five. Uh, you know, it could be very you you he, she could have killed these two old people, you know, but it was just a freak out thing. You know, it could have been like a sacrifice, but it's just the beginnings of what will eventually happen. Uh, yeah, in chapter six, uh, this is a quick one, right? Oh, yeah, this is a good. This is a, a nice little uh, curveball chapter. Chapter yeah. six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hollywood or bust. All right. So it's a cowboy picks up a chick, you know, and it's a cool little interaction of them like uh, feeling each other out. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I thought that was, I thought it was Cliff, a little bit. You know, at first one, I thought it was kind of I, I was picturing him at first, and while they slowly, I thought I thought the girl being picked up was like one of the like the Manson yeah. families. Like that's what I thought. Me too. Um, but the way they're like you know the back and forth where they're both in Texas, uh, it's a rodeo guy. And it's four years earlier, so I don't know. Maybe, um, maybe Cliff did ro- rodeos too, or something like that. I don't know. That's just like my first thought. I was like, oh, okay, it's a different guy. And uh, they're both feeling each other out. Um, they're doing their uh, doing their game, you know. Uh, pulls into a motel, and she's already out. You know, they go to the, the next city, the next state, because um, you know, hitchhiking was a not a big deal back then, which was weird. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah, um, gas or ass, gas or ass, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Grass, gas, grass or ass, and um, that's fucking weird. Um, yeah, but like again, she's described as like, isn't she like um, you know, bare feet? Isn't is she bare? No, no, no. Um, well, the way they describe her, like, uh, like a halter top and like a tight like white skirt and like white legs, very white legs or something like that. Yeah, she had like pale legs. All right, so. Um, you find out it's Sharon Tate. Yeah, you know, she comes to you in the background. I didn't realize Sharon Tate was from a, a military background. I didn't know that. Yeah, um, I didn't know she was from like Dallas. So that's a, that's important to know though too, because military is a big deal in this movie, in this book story. All right, chapter seven. This is where we stop reading in this uh, part. But chapter seven. Uh, you know, good morning, boss angels. I thought of the Charlie's angels, but it, apparently it's from a radio station. Uh. What's this one about again? Um, oh, yeah, this is a good one. This is the morning routine for a bunch of different characters. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Cliff's routine. He wakes up uh, earlier than what uh, Rick said. Rick said, leave your house at 7.15. Cliff leaves his house at like 6.40 or something like that. And he's like driving around. Uh, it, it looks like the, the Wild West. Like he said, yeah. there's no one out there. There's like coyotes rummaging through garbage. Then there's hippies rummaging through uh, garbage. Yeah, and I, and I like the, the part because... Um... It kind of calls out New York, where it's just like if New York is the city that never sleeps, then Los Angeles is the city that doesn't wake up till like mm. late morning or something like that. Because it's like in the wee hours of the morning, like Los Angeles is basically like a desert, like nobody on the streets. Only thing you'll see is like coyotes, like rummaging through garbage. So it reminds you of that, like, you know, this was, like, desert land before it was, like, populated. And, you know, it ain't totally true, because if you've been in New York, 
you know, between the hours of like six and like 8 a.m. It really is like a desert out, you know, in Manhattan too. Like I've been either out that late or mm-hmm. I've been in Manhattan yeah. that early. And it's like a desert as like you'd, you'd really be like flummoxed because you're like, this is no way the city that it is the other like 20 hours of the day. It's creepy. Like, like, again, like if you're out until four or five, you know, you're part of that whole madness. But when I used to work like the seven to four as a doorman, I'd be like out of the house at 5 a.m. and dead silent. Uh, it's not like a desert. I think more of like a moon, like a spa- like a weird spaceship craft that's like desolate. And you see like the little like zombies walking. You see the weird animals like going through the garbage and stuff. And it's uh, they're doing the whole uh no, everything's open all the time and people are it's, it's it's people are up all night and like they're doing their normal thing like it's like the nine to five but it's like their nine to five is eleven to six it's it's crazy i miss it but i don't miss it uh but yeah but so we have the morning routine of cliff which is great and then they have the morning routine of uh, rick and he's he has a hangover and uh now they're they're doing more little planting the seeds that he's uh like mental health saying that he's like you know he's drinking a lot and like he's like insecure, he has anxiety. His highs are high and his lows are very low. Uh, but uh, he's nervous. It's his first day on a new job and he's like the bad guy in the show. And the, you, I've heard this term like so many times in the book and I've heard it so many times this week for some reason on like podcast, but swinging dicks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> swinging dicks is a great line. I mean, so he has to worry about this new swinging dick, this new young guy where he's like, all right, I'm, I'm insecure. Um, but I have to make sure I do my job because, you know, I'm on my last legs and I'm old. You know, hey, he's like Randy. He's like, you know, he's one more fighting him. Uh, but he's hungover and he's like talking down to himself like in the mirror. And he's like, yeah, man, you're going to be hungover till two o'clock. You, you fuck up and all that. Uh, so his pep talk in the morning to himself is like just shitting on himself. Then yeah, they go to the back, the back story. Yeah, and, and he's like blood. Uh, he, they talk about his, uh, this is a real guy. I asked my parents. Uh, yeah, Pete, Pete Dool. Yeah, I'm up too. Yeah, so I found out his yeah, this true story. And so he's like he was drinking buddies with him and um they're kind of just telling that story where uh, again a great I love that they're talking about the seventies, right? You know yeah. yeah, like like a quick aside and it's something they did in the movie too. These are like real um people intertwined with these fictional characters. And when the movie came out, it kind of like resonated with me because my grandma was with us, um, you know, staying with us at the time. And she was spending a lot of time watching like some channel because um, it's no longer like TV, TV line. You remember like TV line used to show all the old movies, but it was like some other channel that would show all this. Oh, yeah. Me TV like, probably. Me TV. That's yeah. the exact channel. And she'd be watching like Perry Mason, um, mm-hmm. Stagecoach, I think. Yeah, my mom watches that. Those like shows. all of those Hitchcock. Old, yeah, like all of those old shows. So, you know, I'm leaving the house and she's watching like one of those shows, and then I go to the movies, watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and then come back home and she's still watching these shows, and I'm just like. Oh, all right. Now I could imagine him being on one of these shows, especially when you watch the episode with like, mm. um, you know, it's a, the famous thing with, 
you know, Leonardo DiCaprio mm-hmm. as Rick Dalton, and he's pointing at the TV. Uh, like, ooh, here's my part. And it's that's a real scene. It's me. That's a real scene. Yeah, but yeah, it's a real it's, scene too. It's been it, meme. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, I could imagine him being on these shows. And yeah, and I, I just love like they use that in the movie. And it's but so much that you could put in the film. And this is why we're doing this because a lot of these things were not in this this movie, but they're in this book. And it makes the story, the overall story of the film interesting because you get to elaborate on everybody. You get into the mind of everybody. You get a little more background into everybody that you didn't get in the movie because you could put but so much things into you know two and a half hours yeah like hollywood system is like an ecosystem you know like you start here like we talked about it with um richard donna where he started as an assistant he started uh directing commercials started directing these western serials uh uh bad guy of the week you know like uh procedurals you know like uh you know, bounty hunter, bounty law, you know, then they also have, and that's like in this, then you have like, uh, we'll have gun, will travel, the rifleman, Virginian, these guys like Burt Reynolds started on those shows. Stephen Queen started yeah. on those shows. And it, rawhide. Rawhide. Yeah. So, um, so that's great. And, uh, people always say like, Oh, it's the book is better. You know, game of Thrones. Oh, the book is better. You know, it's different. The, the books can go into, you know, like I always say, like, like, again, I can like hold up this glass and talk about this glass for an hour in the book. You know, but you can't get that in the. Uh, it's a different medium. It's like comic books, like Watchmen. People always compare the Watchmen, the comic book, graphic novel to the movie. They're way different mediums. You know, that's the fun thing about adapting, and the fun thing how they took a movie, they took a book into a movie, into a movie, into a book. You know, great. Yeah. So uh, Rick's morning routine is still going on, and then it cuts to um, a guy in his bed uh, with a butler, and I'm getting a vibe of like a kid. You know. Yeah, and character was actually in the movie, mm. but all of the scenes was cut and was actually regular Quentin Tarantino actor. I mean, uh, somewhat regular. It was in two, three movies. Uh, Tim Roth. Um, mm. He was in Reservoir Dogs um, a little bit in Pulp Fiction, and then he finally returned in The Hateful Eight. But he was supposed to play Raymond the Butler, who was the British um, butler or manservant of Jay Sebron, who was the actual person who was killed, um, along with Sharon Tate. Uh, Sharon Tate's ex fiance, mm-hmm. who they're still friends with. Again, it's like a ecosystem. But these guys, who they, they get involved, uh, they get into it later on in the, in the same chapter. But um, yeah, so like they're describing, what would you like to do today? Like kind of like uh, literally wearing a glove, handling him. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you like this? Oh, you're out last night. You know, very. I, I'm getting that vibe where he's kind of like Arthur. You know, like Dudley Moore. Yeah. Um, he's watching cartoons and he's like, "I say you should go out. It's like nice out." And um. Yeah, and right, even, even then he was like the the house that they were in was owned by Gene Harlow and her director husband. And Jean Harlow, like, I think she died at, like, 26. Yeah. So, like, her, he, he felt like her ghost was, like, haunting the house. It's foreshadowing, you know, yeah. because they eventually get killed. Uh, but that's a big deal. Uh, people who made all those mansions in, like, the 20s and 30s, um, 
uh, you know, two generations went by, you know, this is like almost the seventies now. So they're looking back at them, like how we look back at the seventies. Uh, but like, you know, all the silent actors, they had tragedies that we don't remember really, but they, they were huge stars in their own right, but we just kind of lost them through the time. Um, yeah. So they allude to that, you know, cause ghosts haunting and now people probably would go to Sharon Tate's house now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so then, so then we have another version of a caretaker. Um, we have one of the, uh, the Charlie Manson's family, uh, taking care of the old man who run, who owns the the ranch what is it this uh something ranch spain spawn ranch, spawn ranch. that's where um they shot like b movies and westerns for like decades and um uh, the manson's family were hiding out or just hanging out living in the um the ranch and it's the the one that we saw earlier squeaky am i saying it right Squeaky, yeah squeaky, yeah so she's like the caretaker of this guy um, the old blind man and um, you know it's kind of like a weird intimate but also a nurse relationship uh, but it's the same like the butler that's why he's it's, it's everyone's yeah. routine which is why this chapter was kind of like structured like that yeah he, he was supposed to be played by um Burt Reynolds mm-hmm. who had passed away unfortunately before they started filming replaced by Bruce Stern um, who was in the movie but I enjoyed this chapter or this section of the chapter because in a movie, um, George Spawn was basically like restricted to just interacting with Cliff Booth. Um, and we didn't really get any type of like explanation or expansion on him and Sweetie. Like in a movie, Sweetie, played by Dakota Fanning, is just like he's in his room, he's taking his rest. Uh, and like she said something like, uh, like fuck the shit out of him this morning. And now he takes his nap. That's his usual routine or something like that. So it was just like, you know, in a movie, she seemed kind of like, um, er- uh, when I say arrogant or just like dismissive. Mm-hmm. And then he was kind of dismissive because, um, Probably Sweetie came in the room and was like, this, here's this guy. He says he knows you, but I don't trust him. So being a fact that like Sweetie is like his caretaker, like he was like, okay, so I don't trust him either. And then Cliff goes in a room in a movie and talks to him. I assume this part's going to come up in a book at some point. Talks to him and like George Spawn says to him, he's like, I don't know you, but you touched my heart. So anything that like Squeaky already implied in his head, he was kind of like iffy about, but didn't really get to expand on it in the movie, but the way they did in the book. So you could find out why they had that type of relationship. And then like Squeaky, it was described that, you know, the master family moved from place to place to place. Um, one of those places being um, Tom Melcher's house. Um, which eventually became Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski's house. That was one of the places that they were staying, and they got kicked off of that, so they were finding someplace else. So they went to the Spawn Ranch, and, you know, Charles Manson being the mastermind that he was, he was just like, okay, there's this old man, you know, his family abandoned him, let's become his family. Um, And it's like, 
let's become his family, not just like his grandkids or his kids. He's got needs. He's a man. He got he got needs. So he chooses Squeaky um, to be the person. He's like, you know, you, it, it, <laughs> here's a term that like every guy uses, you know, when you go out with your group of guys where it's just like, yo, I need a wingman. You're going to have to take one for the team. Meaning like, mm, yeah, if you're if like I see a hot chick and she's into me or whatever, but she got an ugly friend that she won't leave without like you're going to have to like, you know, entertain her. And that essentially was how he was describing George Spawn to Sweetie. He was like, you're going to have to, you know, listen, baby, you got to take one for the team. And she agreed to it. And eventually, um, as described by Quentin Tarantino, as the author, like she she eventually found um, love for him in that way. Like, it was not just like, oh, I have to do this. It was like, all right, like, I don't mind doing it because he's like, a nice guy, but you know, you got to take that with a grain of salt and assume the you know, fictional narrative that goes along with it. A bang wife, a bang maid, <laughs> like in Always Sunny. Uh, a maid that I bang. Uh, it's like hitchhiking, there's rules to it. Like, they are hitchhikers, you know, they, um, there's unwritten rules, and that's what they were doing. Um, any other thoughts on this chapter as we wind down this chapter seven? Oh yeah, they kind of they like like we said prior. This the book oh. actually expands on the post movie lives of everybody, and apparently, like Rick and Cliff were able to continue working together, whereas the finale in the film, you mm, know, yes. where they you know are able to stop the Master family from completing their goal of um killing that night or setting off these killings on Cielo Drive. You know, it actually became, you know, news in Los Angeles, then um news all over the country and then news all over the world. So it rejuvenated um Rick Dalton's career to this point that like people started to um want to see him. And he actually became what it was described as was like he became famous with like what I assume um would be like conservatives because it said it was like Nixon um supporters. Silent majority. Yeah. And they still use that term now during Trump. Yeah. That's so what I, I wait, failed to bring that up to you. Yeah. yeah, so this whole idea like these young progressives coming to your house because that's how they were labeled. It was like, oh these hippies coming into your house with their you know, free love and these progressive ideas and shit like that, like, he killed them because they tried to kill him. So it kind of, like, influenced them, and he actually went on to have, like, a whole other career. And in the movie, it seemed like it was the end of the line with him and Cliff, whereas now, it was just like, I have to continue, like, alright, Cliff, like, I have more movies, and you're my guy, so I'm gonna keep you know, I'm if I get hired, you get hired too. 
Yeah, yeah. I forgot to bring that up. They do allude to it, like, and he, he kind of dismisses it kind of quick. Oh yeah, I killed that. I fried that hippie bitch. You know, whatever, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. like it wasn't like the big. It wasn't like the big moment. It was just like a real an aside in the chapter, which was great. And I love the the. Uh, it's not finite. It's like there there's so much more stories that could be told with these characters, and I love the characters. So like, like they mentioned the the outfit he's wearing is like a movie that he made like, that got popular in the seventies or something like that. Something like that. Billy Jack. Oh, Billy Jack. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. Um, I'd rather bring that up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So chapter seven was uh, nicely tied up with Roman Polanski out in his yard, his morning routine. Um, you know, killing, <laughs> killing Charmantes' dog. Yeah. So it's like now, all right, they're talking about the dog. Like, oh, killing, killing the dog is like killing like a kid, like like throwing a kid down the stairs. Um, I mean, what does that mean? I don't know. It just kind of shows that Polanski's domestic with Sharon Tate and she snores. Yeah. Oh, the, 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 the important thing with that is that in their environment, in their ecosystem, uh, Rick Dolan isn't a part of this, but like he's part of the free love thing where it's like he hangs out with Steve McQueen, who obviously banged Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate still hangs out with her ex-fiance, and he doesn't mind that she's with Polanski now. Yeah. You know, it's, all, it's like there's whole like where – He's being like emasculated by McQueen, but he's emasculating her ex fiance. You know, it's like weird, like that weird dynamic. And, uh, and you know, it's just like, all right, it is what it is. Yeah. It's Hollywood. Yeah. So we'll continue next week. Hopefully, people are picking up the book and reading them. If not, we're doing it for you. <laughs> you know, good, it's a good book. Pick it up it- afterwards. Mike, episode 60. I'm getting too old for this shit. Getting too old for this shit. All right, today I just want to say. What's your uh, final thoughts? Final thoughts is I went to the dollar store today, and I, w- I was thinking about westerns because I was writing, I was reading the book, and I was looking up uh, Richard Donner's history, and I saw that he started out with the westerns, and the first thing I saw was this like western, eighty, you know, eighty hours of uh, you know classic, no thirty hours of classic westerns. And I was just like, oh, it's like everything always t- gets tied up in like a little bow at the end, because uh, a lot of the names that they mention. Like, oh, he did a, uh, he was a heavy in the show and it was, what's his name? Like, you know, Leo Carrillo, different names. So that was the, that reminded me of that. Uh, but we talked also about um, the Rachel Nichols and uh, Maria Taylor, um, just from like the business, the business and political side of it. Um, I'm not going to get involved with like the, her, a woman, a white woman talking to about a black woman, just from the business point of it. Um, uh I think like 10 years ago, a man would have been like, you're filling a quota for a woman. Like I could see it happening where like, you know, God, you know, God forbid, like Mary Taylor is in a situation where she's like, Oh, just cause she's a gay, whatever, whatever, different, different uh, descriptions of her. And then maybe she'll get in trouble. Uh, I'm just playing devil's Ave, um, But uh, I think we should talk about how, why it came up during the finals, very political, just like the election where something comes out right before, a big election. This is like right before a big contract signing. Um, so I think the people that released it weren't doing it to like, for for the benefit of Maria. It wasn't it, it wasn't trying to like be like all night um, supportive. It was just like a business deal type of thing where um, politics and cutthroat cutthroat bull- like shit. And ESPN, um, I think they'll try to get Maria Taylor back or just try to look this squeaky clean. Uh, and Rachel Nichols, um, I don't see her lasting that much longer in 
the sports avenue. I can see her getting her own like journal show, journalistic venture outside of sports because majority of the fans, no, no matter how they, they try to change it where like it's like a story, it's still like sports fans are kind of a, are pissed, annoyed at her. Not annoyed at her, but just aren't fans. Richard Donner, great uh, filmmaker. Shug, uh, you mentioned how he's not really appreciated, not really heralded. Heralded. Um, perhaps now he will, unfortunately, after he passed. But um, Superman paved the way for my favorite uh, superhero movie, Batman, 1989. Um, Goonies is a classic. Um, it's kind of, uh, I haven't watched it in a long time, but it was a big deal. You know, it's fantasy, uh, but it's also like dark elements to it. Cause like they're losing their, their town. So it's just a great memories of watching it as a kid. And I'm glad me and you were able to talk about it as intellectuals now. Um, yeah, I'm excited about the next chapters in the Tarantino book. I gotta be honest. I kind of fell off on Tarantino for a while. Um, but like just reading the book, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing how much of a, a great artist Tarantino is where this is like one of the best like, books sort of like the writing is like very fluid and like, um it's like very poetic the the, the writing because he cares about the material because it's his like he created this world you know that we're that we're having fun reading yeah sure richard donner r.i.p i really do wish we would have gotten our fifth lethal weapon film i think he really wanted to do a lethal weapon film from based on what i, I read um but yeah um i do feel like he should be up there with the other um huge blockbuster directors um you know spielberg obviously you know his range is limitless with you know the blockbusters as well as the oscar worthy films and i guess maybe that's like richard donner's um pitfall where he he, he you know, other than like the old man, he didn't really do anything thing that was like super duper serious. But you know, he should be regarded as much. Like he he's more influential than a lot of people give him credit for, and that's why we do what we do here to highlight and talk about him. Um, once upon a time in Hollywood again, just amazing to, um see a film and be interested in it and then see these same characters being expanded upon and the full story for which he wanted to put on screen but he wasn't able to I mean I guess like in today's day and age like you know once upon a time in Hollywood if you really wanted to it could have been like um, like a miniseries, but I don't know how you'd be able to get like, you know, Margot Robbie, who's a huge movie star, Leonardo, always been a huge movie star, Brad Pitt, always been a huge movie star, um, to to agree to something like that. But I'm glad like these characters, I could put their faces to them, like even like the parts with Roman Polanski and um, JC Ring and um charles manson like i was thinking about all the actors in the movie um you know Emil hirsch and 
um, Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, Margot Robbie. I don't even think about like the real Sharon Tate. I'm just thinking of them as fictional people. Um, and then Maria Taylor, like, and, and Rachel Nichols. I just feel like, you know, we talk about it a lot, like a lot of like performative um, protesting or like performative like allyship. You know, the person whom Rachel Nichols was talking to is like, I believe, a representative of LeBron James. And when you look at like the jump, you know, the show that she holds, there was a lot of like, oh, like, you know, creative. We talked about it a little bit with the narratives and stuff like that. And I, I, I was talking to like my stepdad and I was just like, you know, now knowing because that was a part of it that bothered me a lot where the guy, you know, um, Mendelssohn, he was saying like, oh, like BLM and Me Too, like it's just exhausting to talk about where, you know, as a white man, he doesn't have to deal with being black and he doesn't have to deal with being a woman and being harassed at work or sexually assaulted, but he finds it being exhausting and like Rachel Nichols being a white woman where only one of those things like I just described could possibly happen to her. Um, also giggling because apparently, you know, those type of things haven't happened to her because I don't think she would find any humor in it. You know, as we found with a lot of people in their responses to Bill Cosby being released due to negligence by, um, the criminal justice system. You know, it's not funny to people when these things happen to them. And I talk about performative allyship because, you know, LeBron has to kind of talk about, you know, have you heard this person talk about this or have expressed these feelings and behind closed doors, which he has not. Um, because, you know, going back to how he responded to Daryl Morey being critical of the Chinese government and how they handle things, you know, it makes you think, and this is a point like a lot of cons- conservatives um, hopped upon and I felt bad because I, I like suddenly I agree with them where it's just like, okay, you're very late, you know, Black Lives Matter, but now there's these injustices being done to these people um, in the Far East in China. And now you're telling this guy, um, this white man and this, you know, front office person to be quiet about it because, you know, NBA people shouldn't talk about political matters. So it got me thinking in my mind, and I hope it's not true. Like, as much as I have a bias against LeBron James and I dislike him, I hope that it isn't true. That it's where, you know, people like Mendelssohn are telling him which he or Mendel, him and Mendelssohn are in agreement on which matters he could talk about and which matters he can't talk about or which side to take on this thing or that thing. And I think that's another part of the conversation. But the bigger picture is I don't think any of this should be or any of the spotlight should be taken off of Rachel Nichols because she said those things are not um, 
audio and this stuff was released actually on deadspin like a year ago but deadspin came out on it and it was like some creep somehow got a hold of rachel nichols like hotel room audio so instantly you were thinking like oh they got like you know her own like personal business blah 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 and you dismissed it now more like five minutes more of the footage has been released and it's like you come to find out like she was being ignorant and saying like oh maria taylor only got this position because she's black and this is espn you know doing their um mea culpa when it comes to um diversity and dealing with minorities at her expense you know rather than oh like michelle taylor's uh, I mean, other than, oh, like, Marie Taylor is, like, actually very, very, very good at what she does, and she earned this position, but at the same time, I feel like I earned that position. She boiled out all down to her race. Another thing, the only thing you'd hear me defending Rachel Nichols on is, like, a lot of people were saying, like, oh, you know, last year um, when the NBA bubble in the wild world of sports in the NBA finals, that don't really matter to me. Um, I don't count to me. Um, he was bouncing a basketball and he came out of his room sweating or whatever. And, you know, a lot of people in the past week have been trying to say like, Oh, Oh, he wasn't bouncing a basketball. He was actually, you know, him and Rachel Nichols, you know, we're in our hotel room together, and I, I think that's just, like, fucked up in of itself and very, like, misogynistic because had it been, like, Adrian Wojnarowski, mm. you know, being talked about, like, do you say, oh, like, Wojnarowski was in, Woj was in our room with Jimmy Butler, you know, you don't. So, it, it's, it, it's a, um, it's a very, like, tense um situation a very sensitive situation and i hope people could be responsible and respectful um all around but at the same time i think rachel nichols has a lot more to explain than she did on her you know 25 seconds on the jump but this has been episode 60 of shug me the mooney shug me the mooney shug me the mooney